Converge, Monitor's 50th anniversary event held last year in Philadelphia, unfolded into the realization that the equipment finance industry needs a regular opportunity to effectively collaborate on the future. We have entered into a digital era that most equipment finance companies are just not ready for, frequently due to regulation and a lack of true focus on innovation. In today's podcast with Peter Hinson, who is Converge 2024 keynote speaker, we will explore the current world of innovation and the critical steps needed to become the agile disruptors of the future. But before we begin today, I would like to tell you about Converge 2024. Converge is a two-day dynamic crowdsource conference that will be held in Philadelphia May 15th and 16th. Converge is built for equipment finance professionals to work together to create an agile and forward-thinking future. The event will include dynamic, on-the-court discussions about the future of the equipment finance industry through an innovative lens, a full-day workshop designed to collaboratively tackle the issues our industry is facing and create the future together. The, the conference will also feature networking opportunities with forward-thinking leaders and rising stars and an unparalleled award ceremony designed to recognize industry leaders and teams. Please visit convergebymonitor.com for more information and to register for the event. Early bird ticketing is available until February 16th, so please do not delay. Hi, everyone. I'm Rita Garwood, Editor-in-Chief of Monitor. Joining me on the podcast today is Peter Hinson. Peter is an entrepreneur, a speaker, an author, and he is going to be the keynote speaker at our Converge event this year. Um, Peter, I'm so excited to talk with you today. Very happy to be here, and um, I'm very much looking forward to the conference. And so are we. So we asked you to be the keynote at our event this year because of your passion for disruption and innovation. And those are topics that you discuss at length in your book, which is called The Phoenix and the Unicorn. And for those who are not familiar with your book, can you just explain the concept of the phoenix and the unicorn and you know, explain why that's important for businesses to learn from unicorns? No, happy to do that. And um, I, um, I actually, I, I was getting a little tired of the unicorn stories because every conference you went to, people would talk about Uber and, and Airbnb and all those wonderful, shiny examples of hyper growth companies that would, you know, leverage technology and, you know, disrupt entire businesses. And although they're really wonderful and extremely uplifting stories, most companies out there, I think, will never be a unicorn. I do believe that there's plenty of things that we can learn from these creatures in the sense that, you know, there is, you know, they're focused on, you know, innovative business models. There is the, you know, absolutely technical expertise and their capabilities of being agile and, and moving fast. And you know, there's, there's wonderful lessons I think you can learn. But what I really wanted to find is what I call phoenixes. And phoenixes are companies that have legacy, that have battle scars, that have history, that have been around for a while, that are actually capable of reinventing themselves and maybe borrow a few you know, lines from the playbook of the unicorns, but are capable of reinventing themselves and becoming stronger. And that's the fundamental element of a phoenix. And that's why I, I really love the opportunity of spending time you know, at the conference, because 
I, I think, you know, although there is unicorn potential maybe in this industry, I think there is plenty of Phoenix potential. And I think this is my take. I think after a decade of unicorn applause, I think we have a decade of Phoenix potential ahead of us. Um, and I think what I'm really interested in now is how can companies use that power of disruption and innovation, the power of a world that is constantly changing that I call the never normal, how can they use that to become stronger, reinvent themselves? And I, I'm hoping that I'm going to meet a lot of Phoenixes at the conference. I'm sure you will. I, I love the Phoenix concept. You hear unicorn all the time. I am actually live in a town called Phoenixville. And <laughs> every year we have uh, an event where they build a big wooden phoenix and, and burn it to the ground and and there's little clay birds that they put underneath and they're fired and then you know they they emerge from the ashes which is uh, very symbolic and i love hearing that um in terms of, of of companies it's not something that you hear a lot about um what was the turning point for you in your career that shifted you to this sort of mindset what made you realize that this is necessary to run a highly successful business well, um, I actually had um, quite of a strange career in the sense that I did um, a lot of startups myself when I was younger. So I'm an engineer by training. I'm a technologist. I'm a, a nerd at heart. And I had the chance to actually get into the startup game when I was young. Um, I think I started my first company at the age of 25. Um, we didn't, you know, have really a vibrant startup culture then. I mean, it's you know quite different today. We didn't even have words like unicorns back then. But I had the chance to build three tech companies from the ground up. It's the, you know, start in a garage type of thing, and then you know scale and grow, and then we we managed to sell the first company to Alcatel Lucent. Uh, the second company was acquired by Vodafone. And the third was a company that we IPO'd, we put it on the stock exchange, we raised venture capital, and then we were publicly quoted for four years. And those three opportunities were absolutely you know, brilliant. I, I really enjoyed them. It was um, exhilarating. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was very exhausting. I was really tired after three startups, but it was a fascinating thing to start from scratch and build something without any legacy and trying to address a completely new market. But um, you know, after 15 years of that startup life, I decided to completely change my focus. And I, I'm, I'm very familiar on how to start something from you know, basically scratch and, and grow and, and nurture that. But I became absolutely fascinated in how traditional companies can reinvent themselves. So I started writing um, you know, a few books on that subject. I had the chance to start teaching at London Business School and, and became a fellow at MIT Sloan. And most of my work and my research in the last 15 years has really been on the big corporations, the traditional, the, the, the slow moving, you know, big giants often, um, whether they are banks or insurance companies or retailers or pharmaceutical companies. And I wanted to find actually, you know, what is the mechanism that they can use to reinvent themselves. And, and actually, although I love the first 15 years in that startup environment, I love the last 15 years even more because there is something wonderful about seeing, you know, a big, you know, old company, you know, reinventing themselves. And I had the chance to be very close to some of those phoenixes. One of the companies that I spent a lot of time with in the last six years is Walmart, the, the largest company in the world. 
I mean, 5,000 physical stores in the U.S. alone, 1.6 million people you know, on their payroll. And to see that company with a history of 70 plus years reinvent themselves really gave me a lot of inspiration that Phoenixes are not just real, but that is you know, something that every company can do. Because if even the biggest company in the world can you know, become a Phoenix, I think any company can. And you're definitely going to find a lot of those in the equipment finance industry. Um, you know, there's there's companies that are associated with banks and, and giant captive uh, global um, organizations. And um, it, in some cases, you know, looking at, you know, our technology um, and just our way of doing business compared to even just consumer finance, um, we are considerably behind. Um, and a common theme that I hear when I'm having conversations with people in our industry about that is that, you know, our, our industry is based on relationships. Um, we don't necessarily need to have that technology because, you know, it's all based on relationships. Um, what would you say to, to those people who are making that argument? Um, why, why is that um, not something that, uh, do you think that the, that relationship alone is going to preserve their company and their status quo um, going forward? I, I think these types of um, mechanisms can work for a very long time and then they don't. And I think that is the, the timing is absolutely essential there because um, I do agree with the fact that if you start uh, maybe too early or too aggressively and focus on digitizing things that don't really need to be digitized, but you can just basically maintain what you have, then you're going to waste a lot of money. And it might just be a complete um, wrong you know, set of, of, of addressing that timing issue. But I think if you wait too long and all of a sudden you get into an environment where you know the new normal arrives and you're not prepared, you're not ready, then I think it could be very dangerous. One of my favorite quotes is uh, from Hemingway, the, the, the famous writer who went bankrupt. And when that happened, a journalist went up to him and said, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, in two ways, gradually and then suddenly. Very, very slowly and then boom, it happens. And I have seen this over and over again. And I would agree. I mean, this is an industry where compare it to some of the really fast moving business to consumer type of activities where you see you know almost overnight changes or disruption this might be a slower moving type of mechanism but i do believe that then it's even more important to be prepared to get your timing right and to be able to move when it's necessary i understand that a lot of the you know connections are based on relationships and that human element i think is always going to be important but you also see a next generation moving in that basically just finds digital a lot more easy and normal than maybe traditional when i look at my kids who are basically gen z's you know, once that generation is going to move into the workforce, I think they will behave differently. They will connect differently. They will consume business differently. And that's where I fundamentally believe that I do think that a human premium could be really important, you know, to nurture that. But at the same time, you know, thinking about digitizing and automation and, you know, thinking about the new normal and when that's going to arrive, I think that is absolutely crucial. So my advice would be don't wait too long. Don't shoot too early, but you have to get your timing absolutely right. That's great advice. And and yeah, looking at that Gen Z approach, my my daughter's in uh, in college, and 
picking up a phone and, and making a phone call is not something that her and <laughs> the kids her age ever do. They uh, so uh, definitely need to keep them in mind as uh, as we're creating you know future strategies. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you another example. I mean, in the pharmaceutical industry, um, we still have pharmaceutical reps. And these are people that basically visit doctors every single day and just wait in you know, the waiting room and then have five minutes of conversation with the doctor. And that is still a big, big part of you know, how pharmaceutical companies use their go-to-market. That is now rapidly changing. They've been talking about digitizing for a very long time. And now all of a sudden, when you have more and more doctors that are now the dominant force in healthcare, that have grown up in a world where digital is normal, these are people that say, I don't wanna to talk to some rep in my waiting room. I'll look it up and just you know, give me a link to a portal. And, and I think that's a great example, I think, of an industry that you know, has waited for a long time and now it really has to move because it is you know, changing very suddenly um, you know, in, in, in a very short period of time. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense for the doctors too. You know, they're, they've they have patients to see, they have other things to do, and and spending their time, uh, you know, waiting on waiting to talk to someone in a waiting room is probably not in their best interest or their patients either. So, um, I like that example a lot. So another thing that we do hear from companies in our in our industry is, you know, many of them do see the need for innovation, and they're seeing AI as a potential um, way to innovate. Um, so it's not so much the what that they are concerned about, it's the how. How do they use AI? How do they use technology to innovate? You keep hearing all of these things about chat GBT and, um, you know, positive and negative, um, but the, the nuts and bolts of how do we actually implement this and use it in our organization? I feel like a lot of people are unclear about that. What are some steps that you've personally taken in your career to start using newer technologies to be innovative and, and disruptive? Well, I, it's not easy. I mean, I, I actually think that the world is moving faster. Um, I think we see innovations coming to market, uh, coming to fruition, I think you know faster and more disruptively than anything I have ever seen. Um, there is maybe a moment in time where it's going to go too fast, and and even I won't be able to cope anymore. But I think there's there's something that I find really important. It's almost like carving out um, a discipline um, to you know to to be involved, to understand, to spend time with that. I, I have this model, which I'll, I'll certainly talk about, called the day after tomorrow. How much time do you spend on today, tomorrow, and the day after tomorrow? And that day after tomorrow are the new ideas, the new innovations, the new technologies, the, the new business models that could change the role of the game. And I think, I always say that if you could spend 10% of your time in that day after tomorrow to understand, I mean, a lot of these things are not going to just magically appear and you know, be at your disposal. You're going to have to invest some time to make that happen. There is a new generation, next generation workforce coming that finds this really logical. I mean, when you look at AI, for example, we have two kids now in college and they're using generative AI every single day when they write a paper or when they have to produce something. That generation is going to enter the workforce in just a few years' time. And imagine when they find that the use of AI is just duh, normal for them, how that is going to affect the workforce. So I think if there's something that I have personally you know, invested time on is 
to really carve out that day after tomorrow discipline to you know force yourself to be involved to learn to challenge yourself because my parents you know um still had that idea that what you learn by the age of 25 should last you until you retire i mean i already know i will probably never retire but the next generation is going to be you know, continuously changing learning and that idea of being open-minded and curious is absolutely crucial to make it happen. So if there's one advice I would give is carve out that day after tomorrow, even for yourself, because I think that will be the best gift that you can give yourself to, you know, keep relevant and keep up to date in this never normal roller coaster ride. Yeah, that's great advice. Just the pace of change that we experience today compared to, you know, your parents' generation. I just the thought of learning everything <laughs> that you need to know by the age of 25 seems like, wow, I can't even imagine that <laughs> at this at this point. But um, yeah, I, I, I love that advice. Thanks for sharing it. Um, another thing that you do say is that innovation begins with leadership. Um, what would you say to leaders about adopting innovation and, and leading through times of exploration or uncertainty? Well, I think if there's one thing that, you know, having now spent 15 years really researching companies that can reinvent themselves, um, you know, that, that Phoenix phenomenon that we talked about, it's not you know, just technology that changes the game. I think if there is one absolute, you know, huge element in you know making that um you know workable it's leadership it's you know an organization that understands the necessity to to you know take into account the things that are happening to be able to respond in an agile way the leadership element is probably the most important thing in in that whole equation and that is kind of um, sobering in, in a way, in the sense that you, know, you could dream of the perfect model or some framework that's going to help you. But in the end, it's really about having people who are capable of guiding you through you know, such rapid change, that are capable of really understanding what you need to do to leverage the power of that never normal. And that leadership aspect is crucial. When I look at these phoenixes and when I, you know, and, and you know, across the board, whether it's a retailer where, as I gave the example, Walmart is, is a wonderful example where Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, is one of those visionary leaders who is capable of understanding how the world of retail is changing and then is capable of then executing that. And not just, you know, putting fear in the organization, but, you know, really working on laying the foundation for, you know, the next revision, that new iteration, that reinvention of the organization. So for me, leadership is the absolute, you know, foundation to make that happen. And I also believe we're going to need a next generation of leaders to make that happen. I think a lot of the traditional leaders that we 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 nurtured in the past i think we're going to have to find new ways and new skills and new mindsets new mentalities to make that happen and for me that is absolutely crucial and i think um when i see that we're still training a lot of people um you know we put them through an mba course for example but an mba is a perfect preparation for the last century i think we're going to have to prepare leaders for the next you know challenges that are out there for that never normal. And I think that leadership development is absolutely crucial if you want to reinvent yourself as a phoenix. 
what does if, if the MBA is, um, you know, a thing to prepare you for the, the past normal, what what, in your opinion, would prepare those next gen leaders for the, the new normal? Well, I, I think it's it's you know something that is also continuously changing. But um, I think what you now see is that um, this idea of being flexible and open minded, uh, this idea of being able to be comfortable in a constantly changing environment. Um, not just holding on to you know a plan or a long-term vision, but being able to sense and then adapt. That is, I think, a mindset that we have to learn and train. Being constantly open-minded and curious, and you know, understanding you know what is out there in that day after tomorrow. That's something that we have to learn and nurture. And also where we're going to have to lead organizations and lead people through a lot of uncertainty. And I think that is a, a, a completely different style of leadership that we're going to have to adapt to, that we're going to have to nurture and train. And I would happily point you to you know, a business school that can already do all that, but I don't think it is. I think it's a combination of ways that you can, I think, train and you know, observe and then get better at that. I also believe that this is not going to be where you just say, oh, I'll just follow the HBR article and implement seven steps. No, it's going to be lessons learning. We're going to have to figure this out as we go along. Yeah. For sure. It's definitely new territory and and not only having leaders get comfortable with that change, um, you know, innovation and, and disruption and, and all of these things that we're talking about can be really messy and uncomfortable for, you know, the people working in the organization and, and getting them, you know, as a leader on board with that, enrolling them in, in what you're doing and, and getting them, you know, excited and inspired. Um, definitely something that, that not everyone knows how to do. So, um, super important for the future. So you've done a lot of great work with analogies. Um, an example of one is the hourglass model of innovation. Um, and in that you've broken it down into two parts, which are experimenting and trying and then scaling and running. Can you provide a quick overview of that hourglass model and the advice that you have for companies um, that might be really good at either just the top or the half, um, the top half or the bottom half of that hourglass? Well, I think you need both. So the hourglass model is very simple. We all know what the shape of an hourglass is. Top of the hourglass, this is the, the wide lens where you pick up that day after tomorrow. That's the sense and then you experiment, you reduce the sauce. And then as you get to the middle of that hourglass, this is about how to reduce a lot of those ideas that are out there in the day after tomorrow. And how can you then transform that and experiment to understand what is right for you? Then it falls into the bottom part of that hourglass. And this is where you focus on run and scale and operational excellence and the bottom line. And it's a very interesting model to say, okay, how much energy, time, people, resources do we have in that top part where we you know, look at new things and then experiment, sense and try, and how much of our organization is focused on run and scale? And I find it a really interesting way to think, are we spending enough resources, time, energy, money, budget in that sense and try? Because if you don't, you will never be able to innovate in that run and scale. The second thing is they have to be aligned because in some companies you see brilliant people thinking about the day after tomorrow, but they're just on the side and they're just in their ivory tower. But if it's not picked up, 
by the bottom part of that hourglass, it's going to be very difficult to actually really make a difference. So the hourglass is a very simple way to visualize that. Are you spending enough time and energy on sense and try? And most important, are they actually aligned? Because if you're not, you're really wasting an enormous amount of potential. That's a good point. And I, I, I like the visual. I was, I was thinking of, of just the, the, the motion between <laughs> like going down into um, the operations of the business and, and what that looks like. Um, so your current company, NextWorks, um, helps organizations focus on the day after tomorrow and prompts leaders to think about their investment in the, the far future rather than getting stuck in the day-to-day which lots of us tend to do. Um, can you tell us a little bit about NextWorks vision and what you've observed in companies that you work with? Um, what's trending in, in innovation right now? So NextWorks is, is a relatively small organization, but it's a number of people like myself who like to inspire companies and just get them excited about that day after tomorrow. And we have different disciplines. I focus a lot on technology and strategy. I have colleagues who focus more on the customer side or on marketing or go to market. But we're all trying to get companies excited about that you know, journey ahead. There is so much doom and gloom already. There is so much people who are you know, afraid of change. And you know, with certainly every new wave of technology, look at AI, there's plenty of people who say, oh my God, you know, there's so many you know, dangerous elements or sharp edges or dark sides to that. We're trying to not just discard that, but you know, show them the positive element that you can have if you invest in innovation. And if, if I pick up something today, I think maybe the number one thing that I see today is that a lot of companies are saying, wow, the, the possibilities to do new things have never been higher, whether that is product innovation, market innovation, service innovation, model innovation, plenty of stuff where innovation can provide new ideas, new concepts, new revenue streams, new opportunities. But at the same time, what you see is that companies also need to sometimes think and say, what should we stop doing? What are some of the things that are clearly still legacies from the past, work of yesterday? I call it yester work. And how do you stop yester work? And I think a lot of leaders today should not just be you know, completely um, thinking about that day after tomorrow. I think they should also become almost hunters of yester work because there's only a limited amount of energy that you have in an organization and you can you know keep adding new and new and new possibilities but I think at the same time you have to think what are we going to stop doing and I think that hunting of yester work is maybe as important as focusing on that day after tomorrow for sure um yeah, coming from an organization where we've we've been scaling and adding new things all the time, that that's so important. Like looking and, and finding those those the yester work. I like that term. Um, so focusing on on the day after tomorrow, and everything is is well and good. Um, but there is also the present day, and lots of people do really get bogged down in that. What's your advice to people who tend to not make that time to focus on the day after tomorrow? Well, it's very simple. 
carve out the discipline. I mean, um, it you can get dragged down by just the messages, the emails. I mean, I read a very interesting article in The Atlantic just recently that some people are just giving up on email. They just can't cope with it anymore. It's just too much. And, and it seems like just a daunting challenge just to clean out that inbox every day. And it's not just that. We have back-to-back -back meetings. I mean, we have calls and, and the moment that you're you know, desperately trying to finish a call because the next one has already started, you hardly have time to get to the bathroom three times a day. I mean, post-pandemic, the work rhythm and that pressure on efficiency has only increased. And I think it's so easy to get you know, dragged down into this. But I think carving out the time, that is just a matter of discipline. And I've been doing that for you know, a long time. And I, it has proven to be extremely effective. And I really advise companies, organizations to think about that in their personal environment, their personal lives, their personal calendars, but also the time in your team to think about that day after tomorrow, in your board to think about the day after, in your management team. And I think this is crucial. And I, I think it's probably as simple an advice as that, just carve out the discipline because it's not going to happen by itself. The chances that by three o'clock in the afternoon, you think, you know what? I have no idea what I can still do. Now I'll just do the day after tomorrow is very, very slim. So if you don't organize it for yourself, it will never happen. Yeah, I like that advice about just embedding it into the culture of the company, like the board, everybody on your team, the leaders, your own personal life. Um, that's just, just like making it part of everything that you do. That's that's great advice. So thank you for that. So something that you know that we're trying to do with the Converge event is build the industry, the future of the equipment finance industry together. And, you know, given the current pace of change that we've been talking about, um, for this industry to be thriving in 10 years and to be appealing to younger generations, um, you know, it's imperative that we embrace innovation and adopt a forward-thinking um, approach to technology. What would you say to companies that don't make innovation a priority today um, and let that fear of the unknown uh, kind of drive their decision-making process? Well, I, I, I go back to um, uh, Warren Buffett uh, and, and he is arguably an incredibly smart investor. And I remember one of his statements where he said, if I invest in a company, I invest in companies that are like a strong castle with a big moat, a deep moat around them. I want sharks in the moat. And I think that is a wonderful recipe to survive. I mean, a strong castle like that with a deep moat and with sharks in the moat, perfect. But I love what Jerry Chen from Greylock said, don't confuse thriving with surviving. And I think this is the day and age where as a company, that's the decision you're gonna make. Am I just gonna hold on to what I know? Am I just gonna try and survive? Or am I going to use this opportunity to thrive? Am I going to use this to do things differently and maybe get to a different level to understand and unlock potential to address things that I never thought were possible? And that's a very fundamental choice. And if companies say, you know what, we don't have that spirit mentality mindset. It's, it's all about holding on for us. It's surviving. I see a lot of those companies, but that's not the phoenixes that I talk about. The phoenixes are those companies that see an opportunity 
and then use that never normal as as a mechanism to unlock that potential. And that's why I'm I'm a bigger fan of thriving than surviving. I like the moat technology, the, the moat analogy as well, because, you know, that moat may have held up against, you know, people on horseback <laughs> or things like that. But, you know, when you take into account uh, the changes, you know, we've got airfare and we've got drones and things like that, um, that moat's, moat is not going to, you know, last forever. So a uh, great way to put that. So we are, you know, nearing the end of our time here. Any any final thoughts from you? Anything you'd like to say about the keynote that you're going to be delivering at Converge or your participation on the panel that we will be having right after your keynote? No, I'm I'm just really excited to to be there and and to talk about, you know, my experiences with the Phoenixes, try and hope and stir some you know, enthusiasm and excitement in into the group and into the audience, and then use the panel to you know basically talk about how to make it happen. But if there's one final thought I'd like to leave you with is, if you know, in the run up to the conference, think about the the, the willing coalition maybe inside your organization, the people that would be open minded to really think about how can we do things differently. I mean, it's easy to find people who are just, you know, there to protect the, the status quo. But who would be the willing coalition in your organization, in your company, that you could say, wow, that's going to be the core, the nucleus, maybe, of a group of people that can then take it further and, and really unlock that potential of the day after tomorrow. So maybe something to put in your head. Who would be, you know, my brothers in arms to, to make it happen? That's a great way to end it. Thank you so much, Peter, for taking the time to talk with me today. Looking forward to meeting you in Philadelphia at Converge this year. Um, thanks for doing this and, and thanks for having this conversation. I appreciate it. An absolute it. pleasure. Looking forward to seeing you in Philadelphia.